listeners. You are listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sam Collier. And Sarah Cho. And today's guest uh, is Matt Gordon. He is the artistic producer and resident playwright of the Theater in the Dark. Uh, he is the co-adapter of War of the Worlds playing this October 15th until November 21st. So he's going to be talking about that. Uh, he's also performing in the show as an actor. So welcome to our show, Mac. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Sarah and Sam. <laughs> Yay. Yay. So we like to start off our show with this very important question. Uh, <laughs> so really just go deep, real deep. Okay. So tell us your earliest memory. What was your life like before theater? So my earliest memory is um, when I was growing up, I was born in Southern California in the Coachella Valley. And my dad was an alfalfa farmer. And in our garage, he had this big green sign for his like alfalfa farms. And I just remember looking up at that sign and not thinking anything in particular, but just noting like the colors, the green. It was like this deep forest green that was mm. kind of outlined in this sort of like brownish rusty copper was the lettering and the um, the border of it. And I, I don't know why that's my first memory, but like I have a really distinct memory of looking up at that sign. Do you, I'm always so fascinated by memories like that um, because I cannot remember looking at letters and not being able to read. Do you remember if mm. you were able to read the sign? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. And it would have been, uh, it probably would have, been before I was like even four years old because it was in a mm -hmm. certain house that we lived in and only until I was four. It was this old ranch that actually, um, I believe it was Bob Denver who played Gilligan on Gilligan's Island, like came by and, and bought <laughs> the ranch from us. Wow. Yeah, it was wild. It was like not a nice ranch. It was dilapidated. And actually, uh, I went back with my family in 2000. 11 maybe and we saw the old house and it was like the whole driveway was just covered in like garbage and it was abandoned basically oh, that's so depressing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it was but I actually I we went back to my elementary school west side elementary and we were walking the halls and I saw a teacher who was my grade two teacher and she I was like oh Mrs. Bolin and she looked at me and she said <laughs> Mac and I was like, what, how do you possibly remember a kid like literally uh, 25 to 30 years later? Wow. You know, like, it's crazy. Well, it's, you must have been pretty special. Well, I don't know. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So tell us a little bit about how you got into theater then. Sure. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I don't think I, I, I think I saw one play when I lived in California. I lived in California until I was 10. And then my family moved up to Canada and my dad um, stopped being an alfalfa farmer and started being a new thought minister, which is um, sort of like Deepak Chopra, sort of like oh, wow. Oprah Winfrey kind of religion. So he was like uh, taking courses down in California and eventually he got offered a church in his and my mom's hometown of Kelowna. So we all moved up there. And uh, like I said, I had seen one play maybe when I was from the age of like uh, zero to like 16 or 17. 
and it was Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat at, at like some church oh production. Oh wow, <laughs> was that was an amazing young. show. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that was your, that was your like yeah. platonic ideal. Of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so then um, when I came to Canada, my parents weren't involved in theater or, or really the arts at all at that point. And I think it was because of the community that it offered in high school. It was... I was never really a jock. I was always kind of artistic and creative and weird. So there was just this group of cool older kids who did theater at my school and I wanted to hang out with them. So I eventually joined kind of the drama community and then I wanted to get an education degree initially. And I knew that in Canada, you need to basically get any kind of bachelor's of anything in order to take a program afterwards to become a teacher. So by mm. that point, I had done plays for two, for three or four years, and I decided that the most fun way to get a bachelor's degree was in theater. So I went to theater school at the University of Victoria, and um, I liked it enough that I thought, hey, I'll take a year and try to do this before I go back and take education. And I booked my first couple of auditions as an actor and kind of haven't really looked back since. So when and how did you start writing plays? So I really started writing seriously in university as well. I was wanting to be in the acting program and how a lot of schools up here work is they'll take in about 60 students in first year and then you have to audition for the acting program in second year and that usually carves the class down to 10 or 12. So I didn't make it into the acting program uh, between first and second year, but I still wanted to be able to play the lead in shows, which I wasn't really going to have the opportunity to because I didn't need the credits. Mm -hmm. So I decided to write my own work and cast myself in it. And that kind of would give me my creative outlet. And eventually, after I wrote two plays, I pretty much decided that I liked playwriting better than I liked acting. But I still made more of a living as an actor than as a playwright at this point. But you know how it goes. So when you were writing your first couple of plays, what kinds of stories were you interested in telling? Oh man, they were pretty they were pretty out there. So my first play was called Five Red Balloons and it was set in an insane asylum. I had never seen Marat Saad or knew anything about it, but it was kind of very similar. And mm-hmm. it was about um this group of inmates who were putting on a play and then during the play they um lost track of if they were in a play or not, what was real and what wasn't real. And the premise of the play that they were in was that the world had five years left before its end and its destruction. And essentially what happened was the people in that world destroyed the world before the end actually even came. So it was kind of based on uh, the David Bowie song, Five Years. Oh, okay. So then tell us a little bit about Theater in the Dark. How'd you get involved with that? So Theater in the Dark as a company started when I moved to Chicago. Um, I moved to Chicago in 2018, and I took some classes at Second City. And Corey Bradbury, who is my co-artistic uh, director, he's the, I think his title is Managing Artistic Director, and I'm Artistic Producer. Um, <laughs> we, we met at Second City, and we kind of had... Similar interests, but different enough that I think we both thought that we could be complementary to one another. And he's primarily a director, and I'm 
primarily an actor and a playwright. And I had already written Three Stories Up, which was the first show that we did. And I had per, uh, produced it in Vancouver in 2016 with a company called Alley Theater. And when we did it with Alley Theater, the script is very um, descriptive. There's a lot of poetry in it. It's a noir that sort of sets the city as one of its main characters set in Vancouver. And so there was just a lot of like poetry and the director uh, of the first iteration of it, Marissa Smith, she asked me one day, she was like, well, what would you think about doing this play in the dark? Mm. And I just thought it was such a cool idea. I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I kind of rewrote it for the dark and I had it in my... um my holster when I went down to Chicago. And it's great because you can produce it for very cheaply. You essentially just need a venue and you need to be able to light lock that venue. And then you need two actors playing like 20 different roles. And those actors just have to be brave enough to navigate themselves through a dark room. Um, so yeah, Corey thought it would be a great idea to give that a go. And we produced it last Halloween live in person. And then we started in December to work on an adaptation of War of the Worlds for the Dark. And then in March or April, when everything started to go haywire, we realized what a good opportunity we had to pivot to the virtual. So in May, we did an online over Zoom production of Three Stories Up, since it was already fully rehearsed. And me and Bethany were the two actors. Bethany, um, Arrington were the two actors who kind of had nothing else going on. So we did six shows as sort of a trial to see if we could do it. And it went really well. So we decided to go full bore with A War of the Worlds. I was looking at the website and then I think the description was like, turn all the lights off, lie down, and like <laughs> listen. And I was like, what? Yeah. This sounds so trippy. Um, so I want to play the trailer and then we'll like talk a bit about uh, War of the Worlds. Great. No one would have believed. You see this? What's happened in the suburbs? In the first years of the 21st century. Wi-Fi's not working. That this world was being watched keenly and closely. What's happening? By intelligences greater than our own. I've Kankakee. We should drive out and see it. Careful. Don't get too close. Dr. Pearson, have there been fresh attempts to signal these beams? This October. It's something more than a meteorite. Theater in the Dark presents... It's a cylinder. And it's opening. A war of the worlds. A virtual audio drama performed live every night over Zoom. Pay what you can tickets available now at theaterinthedark.com. Oh, good. I know. <laughs> Goosebumps. Wow. Yeah, I was That's pretty awesome. happy with that. <laughs> so, so one of the things that I'm thinking about, um, and I think you talk about this on the website, is that if you're just listening, the, the language 
is the main event, right? And it, it's so mm-hmm. different from a lot of theater where, you know, spectacle and image are really important. Um, so how does that factor into your adaptation and the way you think about, especially doing it virtually as opposed to in the space? Yeah, I, I, I've kind of my like conceit as a playwright is that words are sort of the spectacle of the mind. So if you can paint a really descriptive picture, it's better than any set I could ever have the budget Mm. to come up with. It's better than any costumes. The cast can be far more varied, even though there might only be two people in that cast. Um, So as far as adapting an existing piece, it was helpful because you could go through uh, the H.G. Wells book, which is what this is based on more so than the Orson Welles radio play, and find the really tasty sentences and take those sentences and sort of put them into a document that was like a collection. And then you start to kind of craft the narrative around those beautiful words And then you sort of start to fill in the gaps with relationship that doesn't necessarily exist in the book as it is, but you kind of have this skeleton to lay everything on. And then what we, what our kind of conceit for the show is, is essentially this nameless narrator has discovered the manuscript of H.G. Wells in an abandoned um, building in a suburb of Chicago. And she begins to read you, the audience, the words that H.G. Wells wrote down. And as she does that, H.G. Wells is kind of conjured to life. So it gives Mm -hmm. us the license to have description that comes from H.G. Wells, but also is spoken by another voice, but is still concrete language of what the show is about, as opposed to this abstract acted uh, omniscient narration. So you still find yourself um, questioning whether or not the narrator is reliable, mm-hmm. but uh, you still have access to um, like a, a narrative overhead that allows you to describe the settings that they're taking place in, allows you to describe what the Martian technology looks like in a very realistic, concrete way, allows you to have action sequences on the Chicago River where the Martians are blasting their heat ray into the water and the main characters are jumping in and like diving under and holding their breath while the Martians are firing and fighting all the people on the surface. Whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. I think of it a little bit sometimes as a ride. It's like a mm-hmm. descriptive, artistic, abstracted, theatrical ride. That's very cool. Like a roller coaster. We begin in one place yeah. and we go through all this frightening stuff. <laughs> and then yeah. we end we end up back where we started, but changed somehow. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So what was the um, collaboration like uh, working with actors or um, did you have a sound engineering person involved? And Yeah. So we have a pretty large team for a virtual production. We have uh, myself and Corey Bradbury who we adapted it together. So that was an interesting experience in and of itself. I had never really collaborated on a script before with someone and he and I kind of 
split it up fairly naturally in the sense that he was more drawn to kind of the story of the aliens and the technology. And a lot of that uh, comes right from the source novel. And I had a lot more questions about the relationships that take place in the play, which are less present in the novel. So when H.G. Wells wrote War of the Worlds, it was the first Martian invasion story. So it was very novel. He could make a really good book just by having the Martians invade and chase people. But to my mind, you need so much more in an, um, a satisfying theatrical production. You need to know who these people are and what they mean to each other and what this Martian invasion means to them as people. So he kind of went through and started to work on um, the invasion story with a lot of the kind of collage effects that we use with media. So we use a lot of kind of media sequences, things coming from the news, things coming from radios, things coming from YouTube shows, um, just general information about what's going on with the Martians and the attack. And then I kind of went through and tried to work a lot on the dialogue between like the protagonist who we call H.G. Wells and his wife. So in the story, um, at one point, the protagonist drops his wife off at their cousins. And that's kind of it. You don't really hear about her or from her point of view again. And my big question was like, what does that look like to be in the middle of an alien invasion? And we said it contemporary. So it's like 2021 and there's an alien invasion happening and you take your wife and you leave her someplace else and you go back into the heart of the invasion. How could you do that? What would that conversation be to motivate yourself to do that and for her to let you go, right? So I kind of started to take it apart in that sense and he started to look a little bit more into the aliens and kind of the real hard sci-fi stuff of it. Um, and then for collaborating with actors, we have four actors who perform every night and then we also have two swings who come in at least once a week for each actor. So every swing is performing at least twice a week. And every primary actor is performing five times a week. And we are going from Vancouver. There's two of us in Vancouver, two in Chicago, and two in New Orleans. So there's like the the woman who is my love interest, Elizabeth McCoy, she is in New Orleans and I'm in Vancouver and we have never met each other in real life. So that's wow. a really interesting wow. thing to navigate. And I mean, even when we're performing, our video screens are off. So we don't even get to look each other in the eyes when we're doing any of these things. It's all the intimacy of the human voice, which actually is very powerful, more powerful maybe than I even thought that it would be. So then on top of the actors and Corey and I, we also have a producer team um, of Brandon Bowler and Zachary Parkhurst, who are handling kind of some of the more financial things and some of the more front of house and box office things. And then we have two sound designers. Um, we have a composer in Ben Zucker, who's in Chicago, and we have sort of a sound engineer in Ross Burlingham, and he's in Brooklyn, New York. Awesome. I think I think that's everybody on our team. But yeah, it yeah. takes a lot of people to make to make a show I think over Zoom, over virtual medium that is fully realized instead of some of the stuff that's come out quickly which is a little bit more of like um staged readings or um even old recycled archivals that people show in the virtual sense right now. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really heard of anything else like this this is super exciting to hear yeah about. the other thing that's fun too is we do it live so i've seen yeah. some kind of radio yeah. plays but they're usually right. recorded 
beforehand. Yeah, and I think the live factor, I mean, we all know this as theater people, it just makes a big difference because you're there in the moment with the performers Yeah, and everybody else who's listening. Yeah, it makes it a lot harder, but I think it's going to be worth the effort that it takes. Yeah. Do you, Have you guys come up with a plan if something <laughs> happens? <laughs> I don't know. Well, like, what Wi-Fi? we do, yeah, that kind of happens for sure. And what we do before the show is just reassure everyone that, you know, it's live. That stuff might happen. If it does, don't worry. We'll take care of you. It's kind of a part of the fun of it. So when we were doing Three Stories Up live, which was our um, uh, virtual adaptation of Three Stories Up, one night, Corey, who was running the Q Lab, so all the sound cues, his uh, internet bonked out. And Bethany and I were in the middle of a scene and was underscored by like gritty, noir kind of jazz music. And suddenly it was just gone. And we were coming toward the climax of the play. And I kind of knew that if we didn't have the sound, it wouldn't be good. So I just waited till she finished her line. And I said, okay, we're going to take a quick five minute break and we'll be right back with the conclusion of Three Stories Up. Pulled out my phone. Turned on Spotify and just started playing like a jazz playlist over my phone into my microphone. So I was like, okay, it's wow. not dead air. But yeah, it's exciting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. So this, I just had to look this up, but this novel was written in 1898. And mm-hmm. it, obviously that was such a different time. Our understanding of space was so different. Our understanding of you know, human beings and like Mm -hmm. space aliens, we just had a really different relationship to, you know, what's out there. Mm -hmm. So what, what, how do you see this story, um, resonating with people in 2020? What do you think is, what do you think we can pull from this very old story? It is so relevant. It's actually crazy. The parallels between what's happening now and this novel especially because we started to adapt it in December before any of this kind of stuff started. Mm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a story that is a metaphor already for colonialism. So in that way, it kind of has relevance to the Black Lives Matter movements and to the protests that are going on. It's Mm. a story about the government not being able to get their... uh, one hand never knowing what the other hand is doing. And so this um, threat from afar can take them out very simply because no, there's no cooperation between the people. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a story that is eventually about uh, microbes and viruses that end up um, having a huge effect on the outcome of the story. It is a story that has a large set piece of two people getting trapped in a bunker together, essentially in isolation and quarantine together and how they kind of get sick of each other because they're there like that. So we try, we actually, it was, we had to lean away from those things a little bit because our instinct is that people don't have a huge hunger to have a story that is about a pandemic, you know? So we let those parallels resonate in the audience's mind. And they, I think, really, really do. And we step back and just tell the narrative story of these human beings and what it feels like to go through things that you as an audience member make connections of in your own brain. Well, 
I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just shift gears a bit. Um, I want to know, so there's, I have a question in my back. I kind of want to revise this. So what, in one word, what do you want the takeaway to be for the audience member after they listen to the show? Like after they experience the show, like what is like the one word that you want them to take away with? Transport. Ooh. Yeah, Elaborate. I, <laughs> I used <that> one word. <laughs> um, I think we, we really want it to be a transportive experience. And that's part of why we have that copy on the website that says, dim your lights, make a cocktail, lay down, put yourself in the space to like let your imagination run away with itself. Um, we're so active. One of the things that we found really cool about doing the show in the dark before is that you're asking people to turn their visual component off without being asleep for an hour and a half, which is something that we just don't do anymore. You're asking people to engage in listening without a visual stimulation that's coming in beside it. And so the experience that some people had with Three Stories Up when we did it live was almost hallucinatory where they were sitting in this space and some of the tricks that we would kind of utilize in the live and in-person shows was um, I would craft the scenes so that they would end with a longer monologue from one character and then the next scene would begin with a longer not a longer monologue, but a, a small monologue. And they would begin with a small monologue from the other character. So there would be a scene going on with two people who are the same actor over to your left, what feels like 15 feet to your left. And as that scene finishes overlapping, the other scene would start 15 feet to your right with the same two actors talking. Uh, wow. So for me... As an audience member, I get bored in theater a lot. So I want to make theater that is for my friends who are not theater people. I want to make theater for, I want to make theater that is exciting and thrilling and new and innovative and accessible to anyone. Yeah, definitely. Are there specific plays that, and playwrights that excite you right now? that you find that I was thinking a lot about of... that when I was um y- yes I mean the most exciting thing that I've ever seen is um uh sleep no more I oh, I'm so heard about sleep no more in like 2010 when it first started because I was doing a show in Vancouver which was um a roving, not a roving show. It was like a site-specific show at an old heritage home. And it was a Halloween like horror show. And it took place in this old, old house. And the audience moved about the space being guided by a radio program. And then one of my friends was in New York because she works for a festival or she had worked for a festival up here called the Push Festival, which is like an international performing arts festival. There's a lot of experimental stuff. And she told me about this show and it wasn't until 2017 or 2018 that I finally 
got to go and see Sleep No More. So you can imagine eight years of hype in my brain. I didn't think <laughs> that it was going to live up to it. But I paid for my ticket and I went to the show and someone told me like it happens three times. So the first time, just explore the space. The second time, follow a character. The third time, follow another character. And I was like pretty sure that I was in the second run of it. And it was the third run. And I almost went and bought another ticket for the next wow. night just to like see it again. It's so incredible. It's so so you, you kind of lost track of the time and the sequence. Oh my gosh, Is that what I you're lost saying? track of everything. I was like falling in love with every single performer. <laughs> there's this one, there's like a thing that happens in Sleep No More to some people where, so what happened to me was I was in these woods and the woods look realistic enough that you can believe that you're in the woods, although you are in like basically a warehouse or an old hotel. And I came upon this um, treehouse and a window in the treehouse opened and this woman looked out and she looked right at me. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. And she put her hand out and she beckoned to me and I kind of stepped forward and nobody else stepped forward. And then she came out of the treehouse and she took my hand and she brought me in and she closed the door and she didn't let anyone else in. You wear a mask if you're an audience member. And she took my mask off and she poured me a cup of tea and she gave me the tea and then she did like a monologue. And I was just like Whoa. truly all, all the emotions of falling in love with this nurse. I was like, this is so intense. Did you drink the tea? Oh, I drank the tea, yeah. For was she fed me. Part, wasn't there any part of your mind that was like, what if this makes me stuck in the underworld for a hundred years? <laughs> oh, you're right. That's a really good point. What if I can never leave this warehouse? <laughs> <laughs> or she wooed me. She wooed me hard. Oh, that's so cool. I, oh my gosh. I don't know how I would handle myself. I would I I think I would just be like, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. <laughs> and just like run out. You don't think you would fall in love, Sarah? Um n- no, because I'm like, this is too much pressure. This is too much pressure. <laughs> So it sounds like that was a really you were excited to see it for eight years and then it was a it lived up to your expectations and was a yeah. really significant moment in your theater life. Yes, absolutely. Cool. All right. So everything that you're talking about, like I am just like, wow, there is hope for theater. <laughs> 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 no hope, right? I'm just like I'm it's it's giving us hope from Canada. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Um, we got to get inventive in Canada for sure, <laughs> and we also have better arts funding in Canada, so we can actually kind of do some things. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's such a big. Yeah, that's so. That's a huge. So important. yeah. Um. So, the question I have is, you know. What advice would you, for you know, maybe maybe writers who are kind of stuck in their own rut or something, and like, how would what advice would you give uh, to those writers who are, to think outside the box and think uh, bigger, if that makes sense? I think, like I heard someone say recently, if there's no books that you like on the shelf write the book that you want to read and for me it's like I hate making anything for anyone other than myself I know that it needs to be accessible and that it needs to be understandable but 
if it's not something that I'm interested in seeing, then what? who is, right? So my advice would be to figure out what you like, hone your taste, refine it, polish it, and then make the stuff that you want to be made. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've heard that too. Like write the play you want to see. Mm-hmm. Especially if it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Or hear, I should say. Write the play you want to hear. <laughs> hear. Oh, right, yeah. good one, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm adapting. <laughs> so, okay, so here's a good question. This is a big question. No pressure. But um, right. how would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century? It means being adaptable. I mean, you just were talking about adapting. It's like, especially right now, One of the most exciting things for us with Theater in the Dark was we saw an opportunity where most theaters were canceling their seasons to to announce a season. Mm. And as an artist, you're going to have to learn how to do everything on a shoestring budget. You're going to have to learn to live within your means, both uh, survival-wise as well as artistically. So I often, too, sometimes think about you know, the one for me, one for them uh, philosophy of like John Cassavetes, where he would like go and act in something that he didn't want to act in so that he could make enough money to direct and produce the stuff that he did want to do. And mm. for some people who are lucky, that means, you know, doing uh, a, an acting gig so that you can produce and direct and write something. For some people, it means working in a restaurant so that you can buy canvases canvases to put your paint on. For some people, it means working at a coffee shop so that you can buy a better amp and go on tour and play music. Oh, it's so hard to talk about those things right now because it's just like, when will music come back? Gosh, I know. But I mean, that that is it, right? That's I don't have the answer for musician artists of how they can adapt right now, but I know they can. I've watched a few, my friend Aiden Knight from Victoria, who you should listen to his album afterwards. Um, he just did a live stream show, but it was like, had good production value. He had a band with him. So they were like wearing masks cool. and they were uh, like social distancing, but it's just shot really well. The set decoration is really nice the sound itself he like really put the work into making sure that the sound was high quality and even though it was live and even though it was streaming sounded almost better than what you might listen to on spotify so there there's hope out there i want to see a podcast about a band where they take you through them writing songs where you're in the studio as they're putting an album together i yeah, don't know that if that's out really, there yet but cool. i mean that's a freebie for you, musicians. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been seeing um, like comedians, stand-up comedians doing their stand-up at, like at a baseball field or like right outside on the lawn of like right. a college campus. You know, they're just yeah. like, they get like a little amp and then a mic and they're just like carrying it wherever they can go and like going to do my stand-up set right here. Yeah. Um, I saw my friends who are, um, they're, they're, performance artists really they're called mind of a snail and they were doing improv live through a google doc so you could access the google doc as a viewer and it was all just typing 
What? That's so about, cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's so, there's, I mean, that's what artists are good at, innovating and adapting and being flexible and coming up with the next thing before anyone else can come up with it. Well, before we move on to Glistens, um, where can our listeners find you? So uh, you're going to want to check out our website for Theater in the Dark, which is theaterinthedark.com. That's an R-E, not an E-R, like the Canadian version of theater. (laughs) Or actually, I asked someone, someone told me when I came to America, because I was seeing some R-E theaters, and I was like, what's the difference? And someone said, theater, the art form, has an R-E. Theater, the building, has an E-R. Oh. Oh, okay. I buy that. Um. What about so, color with a U? No, just kidding. <laughs> I know. My, my, like, that was like the best thing on dating apps in America was typing things with the U because people would have something to talk about immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was working at a restaurant in Chicago as a server too. And I would always come over and be like, oh, we have a lot of pasta options. And I'd be like, do you have an accent? I'd be like, well, yes, I'm from Canada. <laughs> That's good. Chicago is a cool city to be Canadian in because there's not really any other Canadians in Chicago, whereas like New York or L.A., there would be quite a few of you. So That's I got surprising to that in... there aren't more people that come over like from Toronto. Yeah, it's close, but because of the nature of getting a visa, you need to be such yeah. a specialist in your field that most people right. jump over the indie theater scenes and go more into like Broadway and things like that or or f- film and TV in L.A. Um, so, yeah, you can find us at theaterinthedark.com. Our Instagram is at theater underscore dark. My personal Instagram is at Mac Gordon, uh, M-A-C-K. And then my Twitter, which is the thing that I think you should follow if you want some good jokes, is at Mac. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Wait, at, say it again because I laughed over you. That's okay. It's at Mac Gord. Got it. Okay. Yeah, Great. we'll make sure to link those on our show description. And yeah, um, War of the Worlds uh, playing from October 15th until November 21st. So it's this, uh, oh, next Monday. Starting next Monday. So, or. Thursday. Thursday. Or Thursday. Yeah, yeah. October 15th is Thursday. I hope it's not Monday. We got to back (laughs) on Monday. It's just we're (laughs) releasing our show on Monday. Monday. Uh, Listeners, just the 15th. That's the 15th. Just, <laughs> don't try to track what I'm trying to say. Just, just October 15th. That's all you got to know. Um, <laughs> awesome. Great. Let's <laughs> let's move on to Glistens. Um, so Glistens, this is a part of our show where we just kind of talk about what uh, stood out to us over the week, like a highlight of the week. Um, it could be literally anything. Um, a news uh, headline. I know there's a d- dozens of those. Um, <laughs> uh, just anything. So who wants to start? I'll start. Um, okay. My glisten from this week is the new Lincoln Project ad. The Lincoln Project is this group of Republicans that are trying to get people not to vote for Trump. And um, they have been making pretty amazing ads. And they made one using the footage that Trump filmed of himself returning to the White House. Um, but over the video footage, they uh, recorded a rendition of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, except they changed it to Don't Cry For Me, White House Staffers. And <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So 
I encourage mm. everybody to go check it out. It's called Covita. Covita. Okay. Covita. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I could go next. So my glisten is so yesterday. Uh, no, it was the the vice president de- uh, debate, um, and I watched the thing, and the fly. Like I gotta <laughs> talk about the fly. Like the fly. This is not the first time a fly <laughs> lands on the like the head of a person. So, um, this fly is so famous. Anyways, the the, <laughs> the real glisten that I really want to talk about was like on Instagram. I follow Amy Sedaris, and she posted um, this uh, a snapshot, a screenshot of what flies, and I'll just read this to you. And that was just like hysterical, but I was like also so true. Um, flies in the Bible. In the Bible, flies have a completely different meaning. Flies represent the worst evil and personification (laughs) of the worst on our planet. If flies follow you in biblical interpretation, you do not have happiness and you will not have it as long as they are present. So (laughs) I just thought that was funny as I saw that post and then seeing this fly land on Pence's head. Um, So, yeah, I was this this fly is so famous. (laughs) Pence's hair is so weird too. It's like it's not surprising to me that a fly would land on there. It's and then when it was on there, it was almost like it was on a mannequin's head instead of yeah human being's head. It was all very strange, uncanny valley kind of stuff. Yeah, it just stayed there as if it was on an inanimate object. Do you know what the show Maniac Mansion is, or is that a Canadian show? No, tell us. There used to be this TV show in Canada called Maniac Mansion. And the the star, I don't know, the main character of it was the dad from Freaks and Geeks, Sam Sam and Lindsay. Is that his sister's name? Sam and Lindsay's dad. And um, in Maniac Mansion, uh, he gets turned into a fly. And so you follow him like trying <laughs> to like help and save his family. But he's it's his head, his face on this fly. And eventually they like recognize him and they just like know he's their dad. But he's a fly and he can't like communicate to them or talk to them. Very weird. (laughs) So my glistens, uh, I'll take a little bit more of an optimistic, non-political route as as a Canadian here on the show. I really appreciate that. Appreciate that. I realized that I have the opportunity to turn uh, an American audience onto some Canadian bands, which I always love to do. So Aiden Knight would be one. He just came out with an album not too long ago. And then my friends in this band, Yukon Blonde, which are definitely, you should check them out. They are coming out with a new album in the next like uh, month, I think. But they have a few singles that are out accompanying it right now. The one that I like best is called In Love Again. And I would give that a listen. And then two uh, stand-up comedians from Canada who you should definitely check out who have new albums coming out in the next month. One is Katie Ellen Humphreys. And the other one is John Cullen. All right. That's awesome. What? Something to look forward to. I yeah. like that. I always like Thank that. Thank you for Something giving us the, the levity exactly. and the optimism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I want to plug to you. Um, we're making a podcast with Theater in the Dark. Cool. And it's like a, it's like a, a mystery anthology, essentially. So we're doing 10-minute radio plays that are 
updated and contemporary. They're not necessarily set in contemporary settings, but they're not like the radio plays of yore, which I find can be a little bit hokey and shticky. They're <laughs> more reliant on genre in a kind of realistic and authentic place. Are you still going to have like footsteps as somebody walks across the room? <laughs> like, yeah, we're, really we're navigating. <laughs> we'll have sound effects, but they won't be exaggerated. So mm. the hope well, that is that super cool. Yeah. You're not sure if those footsteps are in the recording or in the room with you. Oh. Mm. Awesome. So awesome. stay tuned for that, listeners. Yeah, and it'll <laughs> yeah. be called Theater in the Dark as well. Okay. Cool. R E. Theater R E. You got Canadian it. Way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks so much for coming on to our show, Mac. Yeah, thank well, thanks you. Thanks for having me. It was great. <laughs>